Well, I'm excited. Uh, last week we started a series called uh, Encounters, talking about people who have face-to-face encounters with God and how it changes their lives and how looking at those encounters throughout the Bible that we can know that our, can, our lives can be changed just like those people throughout um, the stories of Jesus and the Gospels and even in the Old Testament, their lives were changed. And so last week we talked about uh, the disciple John. Uh, he went from being the son of thunder to being the disciple whom Jesus loved. He went from wanting to call down fire and burn people alive to at the very end of his life, the only words that he would say is love one another. And so when we look at John's encounter, we see how a life full of meeting Jesus can and will change you. And I pray that as we continue to grow and and get older, that every single one of us would become more like Jesus, that we would become more loving, just like we see John became more loving, that we'd be less legalistic, that we'd be less bitter, that we'd be less judging, but that we would be more loving and more accepting of, of people and knowing that God wants to change people's insides because when the inside is changed, the outside will conform. And so I pray that um, we'll become more like that. And I believe with all my heart that if we don't, then we're really not meeting Jesus like we should be. Like we see John and how he meets Jesus and how it changed him to become this loving person who people saw Jesus in. This week we're going to look at uh, the lame man's encounter. Uh, This is a man who couldn't walk. He would sit by a pool at, um, um, oh shoot, I want to say Bethsaida, but it's Bethesda because it looks like Bethsaida, which is another place in the Bible. So he's at this pool at Bethesda, and it's a really interesting story. And I really pray that when you guys are reading stories like this, that the words would really jump off the page to you. And if you have your Bibles, I believe it's really good to have your Bible. If you don't, that's fine too. Um, But When I was a kid, I used to read stories like this and be like, wait a minute, (laughs) what is going on here? And I'd highlight it, and then I'd go home and I'd read about it and try and figure out what exactly is going on here. So I pray that you guys would do the same, that you wouldn't just allow the Word of God to stop here, but that you would bring it home and that you would bring it to your families and you'd bring it to your own studies and continue to search the Scriptures to understand and to encounter Jesus in a real way. Uh, It can't just be about what you hear and read on Sunday mornings. It has to be a lifestyle because that's how we become more like Jesus. So this morning we're going to be in John chapter 5. This is the story of the lame man um, at um, Bethsaida. Um, Now that I've said it twice, I'll probably hopefully remember it. This is what it says starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now this feast was actually the Passover. This is the second Passover that Jesus has um, attended during uh, his time in ministry. The first one is in John chapter 2, after the wedding festival that he went to, which we talked about last week. John chapter 2, verse 13. This is the first uh, Passover he went to. It says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So now we're in chapter 5. He's in the second Passover. But we have to understand, as a Jewish child and a Jewish religious family that he would have gone to every single Passover. Uh, He would have uh, traveled with his family to go to Passover growing up. This is the second one of his ministry. Chapter uh, 5, verse 2. Now there there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which 
is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Now, why are there these porches? They believe that these porches were actually places for shade because these people would be sitting there, sick, lame, not being able to move, whatever the the case may be, and they didn't want them dying of heat stroke and then having to pull their bodies out of the way. So they they made these shade areas for them um, at this pool. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Now, this isn't waiting for somebody to turn up the dial on the jacuzzi at the local um, uh, hotel. <laughs> All right. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in, in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. This is where I was like, say, what? <laughs> like, what in the world is this talking about? Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity uh, 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been in that condition for a long time. He said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir... I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. So at least that's what's happening in his mind. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Now, Jesus had a really bad habit of healing people on the Sabbath, which drove the religious people nutso, which is so cool. Uh, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, is it the Sabbath? Is it not lawful for you to carry your bed? He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up my bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who had healed him, um, who was, the one who was healed did not know who it was. Now, that's important to understand that this man did not know that it's Jesus who healed him. Uh, remember that. For Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now, I don't know about you guys, but reading this, isn't it amazing that they seek to kill Jesus because he helped people? I mean, this is how twisted and messed up religion can get. That they didn't even care that Jesus had healed somebody, that the miraculous had taken place, that there was a miracle, that somebody was made well. All they care about is the fact that somebody did something that they didn't approve on. And the danger of religion is religion will always, in its full, in its full form, it will always try to seek to make it only about religion. So that you obsess with religion and forget the reason for your religion. You see, Jesus was religious. Jesus was not against religion, but religion becomes dangerous when it points to self instead of pointing to the heart of God. 
Now, this is the first, or technically, because he meets Jesus twice in this story, second encounter that he has with Jesus. He, he meets him a couple of times. And where last week, the dynamic was somebody who met Jesus time and time again throughout his life and how important that is to do in all of our lives. This shows a specific initial encounter with Jesus, and this guy doesn't even know who he's talking to. Let's start with prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this day. God, I know that you have a word for every single one of us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to really hear uh, from your spirit, Lord, that we know that you are here with us, that you want to change us, Lord, that you want to make us more like you. God, I pray that every single one of us would have an encounter with you this morning, Lord, that we would expect those encounters, Lord, and it wouldn't just be today, Lord, but it would be tomorrow, Lord. It'd be when we're out having pizza, Lord, that we would have encounters and seek encounters out with you, Lord. And when we go out to our world and the spheres that we live in, Lord, that we would allow other peoples to have encounters with you through us, Lord, that we would seek to um, to really do what is the will of God and to, to go out into all the world, Lord, but that we would have those encounters so that we can give others encounters as well. So we believe these things and we ask them in your name. Everyone said. So, um, the... It's interesting where it talks about where this miracle happens. Um, um, Bethesda is, the word Beth actually means house, and Bethesda means mercy. So this is the house of mercy. Uh, There's actually a lot of Beths in the Bible. There's Bethel, which um, we think of Bethel, but it's actually Bethel, and that is the house of God, El being short for Elohim. So Bethel, there's Bethsaida, which is a house of fish. There is Bethlehem, which is house of bread, uh, or Bethlehem, which is house of bread. And then my favorite, which I think is the most revealing, is Beth Katz, which means house of demons. Um, <laughs> that is not actually in the Bible, but it should be. <laughs> So Bethesda, it's the house of mercy. And when you think of this story and you think of what's happening here, um, you have this place where people are coming and seeking healing and help and deliverance. And Jesus comes and he, he heals and he shows up and he meets people. I can't think of a better way to describe what the church should be. That the church that we are a part of, that Jesus' church, it should really be a house of mercy where we know every week that Jesus is going to meet us, where, where we have mercy and we see healing and we see deliverance from things that we never thought that could happen. And, and we believe when we p- bring people to this place that they will meet Jesus as well and they'll have an opportunity to see the face of Jesus and meet people who love Jesus and be delivered of things that they struggle with in their lives. And I believe that so much that this is what Jesus' church should be. But unfortunately, so many times we see in the church and in our own lives that it's not a place of mercy, but it becomes a place of judgment where it should always be a place of mercy. And then we see this story in Bethesda, this house of mercy. And it says, at a certain time that the angel stirred up the water. Now, what in the world is this talking about? Well, here's a little bit of history on what's being talked about here. Uh, the rumors would be that, that this angel would stir the waters, and uh, historical documents actually talk about, it's, the, um, it's actually found in the Talmud, uh, the Babylonian Talmud, uh, talking about this place. They actually didn't think it existed, and so they, a lot of people were trying to disprove the Bible, or at least the Gospel of John, because of this story, and they couldn't find the place where this happened. Well, in the 1960s, they actually found it, and then everyone had to um, 
be quiet because they were wrong and they, they actually found it because everything in the Bible is true. And uh, so, so there's this place, and, and historically what they said was the stirring started actually around the same time that Jesus was born. And it also said that the stirrings would always happen around the feast. And so, you know, I don't know what happens, and the Bible doesn't really tell us, so honestly, we don't need to know. But it's a little bit fun to think about uh, if this is a coincidence. The, the words that are talked about in some of the actual transcriptions of this story, it, it doesn't just say an angel. It actually says an angel of the Lord, or the angel of the Lord, and, and we know who that is. And so it's fun to sort of think about what is actually happening. I mean, I could just see this happening during the feast. Who would have been in town? Jesus. And so, I mean, I can picture the scenario like Jesus is like five, six, seven, eight, and he's walking by this pool and before Passover with his parents. And he's like, like, <laughs> just like stir the waters a little bit. And obviously this is not what the Bible says, but I, I can see this type of situation happening. And Mary is looking at Jesus and being like, you always do that. Why do you always have to play in the water? And then all of a sudden you hear in the, in the distance, hallelujah, I'm healed. <laughs> And after that happens a couple of times, maybe uh, Mary's like, you did that, didn't you? What do you want me to do? People need to be healed. And so, you know, I'm just having fun with this. But, but, you know, you think about it, and these people really believe. We look at a story where a man is talking about how I've tried to get into the water before, but somebody else gets in front of me, and then they get healed. And so it's sort of like Mary, she goes to Jesus to get wine during the party. How did she know to go to Jesus to get wine if he hadn't done that before? I, I don't know. Maybe that he did that before, but we, we don't know because it's not in the Bible. Um, but Jesus, he encounters this lame man. And when we see this story, we see this man, he has three things in his life. And there's three instances in this story that he has to overcome before his life can be changed in this encounter. And um, so I want to talk about those, those three things. Jesus, he, he walks by and he sees this man. And he asks a question that, to me, it seems <laughs> unnecessary. It seems like it should be very, just very redundant, uh, almost like a rhetorical question. Jesus asks and says, do you want to be made well? Well, duh. <laughs> like, yes, I do want to be made well because I'm sitting in this place and it's hot and it's uncomfortable but he asked this question, and Jesus doesn't waste or ask unnecessary questions. And in my, my uh, reading of this, the first thing I ask is, what areas in my life would Jesus ask me, do I want to be made well? What areas in your life would Jesus ask, do you want to be made well? And in verse 7, says, the sick, sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the water, into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. So, so Jesus asks him this question. He has this encounter with Jesus. And at the very beginning, he's, he hears the words, do you want to be made well? And he doesn't even say yes. He doesn't say yes. What he does is he meets Jesus with an excuse instead of an answer. His first encounter with Jesus is not what it should be or what I would want it to be or what you would want it to be or even this man, if he knew who he was talking to, would want it to be. He doesn't say yes, he gives an excuse. And, you know, I think we do this all the time. 
We, 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 we think, gosh, I, I want to be made well. But instead of when God asks us, do you want to be made well? Or do you want freedom from this area in your life? Instead of saying, yes, please, I'm desperate for that. What we do is we make up an excuse. And what we say is, here's why it's different for me. Or here's why that won't work. And that's exactly what this man does. You know, I almost wonder if he like said it with a pouty face. Like, I can't get in because the guy's getting in front of me and I can't get there in time. So it's not my fault. I'm so sad. But, but here's what he says. He says, it's not my fault. It's someone else's fault. And I think that this is the number one excuse in society today. Where we go, our default is always, it's not my fault. I can blame this on somebody else. And why do we do that? We do it out of self-preservation because we don't ever want to have to look at ourselves where God wants us to look at ourselves. And Jesus says, do you, do you want to be made well? Not do I want you to be made well. Do you want to be made well? And because that's the number one excuse that we go to, I believe it's the number one lie that the enemy uses against us. That it's somebody else's fault. Because nobody can hinder God's destiny for your life except for you. And here's what I always hear. You just don't understand my situation. You don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand the stress or the hurt or the pain that I'm going through. And listen, I don't understand your stress. I don't understand your situation. I don't understand your pain. But what I do understand is Jesus. I understand that he can take on anything. I understand that he has put everything under his feet, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and there is no situation that is too big for him. But we buy into this lie and we say, well, I believe that God heals marriages, but here's the reason why he can't, he can't heal mine. Or we say, I believe in forgiveness, but here's the reason why I can't forgive. Or I, I hear this too, I believe in, in giving or tithing, but I, I'll tell you right now why that doesn't work for me. Here's what we say. We say, let me tell you why I'm the exception to God's power. But listen, you are not the exception to God's power. There's nowhere and nothing that he cannot fix, that his power cannot go. Don't make up any type of reason or excuse because your excuses are not the way you want to meet God in your first encounter with him. When Jesus says, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be freed of this? We shouldn't be saying an excuse. We should be giving an answer. And this man, he had to get past his excuses to get where he wanted to go and where God wanted him to go as well. In John 5, 5, the beginning of the story, this is what it says. Now, there's a certain man who had an infirmity 38 years. Now, we assume that's his legs because um, Jesus says, get up and walk. Uh, but the word infirmity there, it means weakness. It's the word in Greek, athenia. Um, it's the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where he says, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. So that's the same word that is used for the infirmity of the man who couldn't walk for 38 years. And then it says, Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities, that's the same word again, than the power... Uh, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So it's not that this guy didn't have legs. It's that he had a weakness. And it's that weakness that stopped him from walking. 
And when you realize that you have a weakness and, and that your story, um, that this man had a weakness, it really becomes more relevant to our stories. Because we can read about a guy, oh, he couldn't walk. Well, okay, he, that, that's, that's really sad, but, but that doesn't really apply to me. But when you realize that this is a weakness in his life, and Jesus, is, it's talking about a man who had this weakness for 38 years, then we can look at it and say, what, what's my weakness? Maybe it's not a physical weakness, or maybe it is a physical weakness. What, maybe, what's my emotional weakness? What's my mental weakness, or my spiritual, or my, my lack of discipline is my weakness, or my habitual sin is, is my weakness? And, and I, I wonder if we ask ourselves, what is the Holy Spirit talking to us right now? What is that one thing that you're thinking of, or you're thinking, I wish I could get past this so I could fully run the race that God has called me to? And if you can't think of what that one thing is, you're thinking, I don't have anything. Ask your spouse because they'll give you a list. Um, It goes on in verse 6. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? So first we have, you can't have this excuse in your life. You have to get past this excuse. And then the encounter includes this question. Do you want to be made well? And so Jesus, what he says is, rise, take up your bed, and walk. What he's really saying is, put some effort into it. There are weaknesses in our lives where, where God is saying, you need to do something. He doesn't say, be healed. That's not the first thing Jesus says. He says, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And Jesus knew this guy had been there for a long time. And so what happens is sometimes we get so comfortable with our pain and our suffering that we don't even do anything about it. I know I had knee surgery um, a while ago, but before I had my knee surgery, I, um, I, I tore my ACL playing basketball, trying to be like LeBron James or something when I'm not, because my wife tells me I'm not all the time. Um, but I think I am. And the guys I play with think I am. No, just kidding. <laughs> but I tear my ACL, and I wait probably eight or nine months before I get it fixed. Well, in that time, I really got comfortable. And it was a very strong temptation to say, ah, forget about it. I was talking to someone this morning who got knee replacement, and he was saying how people who have dealt with the pain for a long time uh, they usually heal faster because they're just so used to it. And, and a lot of times people who get so used to the pain, they don't even realize the pain's there anymore. So they don't even ever get anything done to them. But there's these things, this weakness, this pain, or this thing that's wrong in your life or in my life. And after a while, you've dealt with it so long that you've just become comfortable with it. And you look at the story of this guy, and obviously it's pretty apparent that he's comfortable with his situation because he has a bed with him. I mean, this isn't Ikea. They didn't have Ikea back then. So this isn't like, shink, shink. Okay, I'll just take this with me. I mean, he's got a bed with him. He's comfortable in his situation. Jesus knows, okay, this guy, he's, it says it was apparent to him that he'd been in this situation for a very long time. And so it really becomes a legitimate question to ask. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to get out of your comfortable zone now? Now your uncomfortable has now become comfortable because of this weakness that you've become accustomed to and become a regular part in your life. And do you want to be made well? And a lot of times I think the answer is no. I think a lot of times we see that people, they, they don't want to be made well. Uh, there is 
so many stories of where uh, women will have a husband who's not a believer, and, and, the, and the church will pray and, and pray for that husband to um, come to know Jesus. And, and then the husband finally comes to church and gets changed by Jesus, and it's such a great story. But then the wife gets angry, and you're thinking, what in the, why in the world would you get angry? And obviously this isn't every situation, but I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. And they get upset because now they don't have the sympathy of everyone in their church and the attention that they used to have. It's I'm comfortable with what shouldn't be, and so now I don't know if I want what should be. Um, there is a, a story of somebody who... who um, had been sick uh, with, with this thing in their chest for years and years and years. And they had always come up, this pastor was telling the story actually, and he would always come up to, to get prayer. And, and every week, it was like his thing, he would come up to get prayer. And one day the pastor went to him and said, do you really want to be made well? Because he wouldn't go to the doctor. He wouldn't go get it checked out. And he actually said, no, I, I don't, because then I'd have to go get a job. And so the pastor said, I love you, and I care about you, but don't come back up until you're ready to be made well, until you want Jesus to heal you. Because it's not about you coming up here and feeling like you have attention or somebody sorry for you. It's about allowing Jesus and the God of the, the power of Jesus to work in your life. And so this is the thinking that made Jesus asked the question. And then he follows, follows it up at the very end of the story in verse 14. And what does he say? He says, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, this is, has been used to pull out doctrine that is terrible, that is not accurate, that does not um, really resound with the rest of Scripture in any ways. Uh, and what it says is that people say... Uh, all sickness is the result of direct sin. And that is not what this is saying whatsoever. And that is a doctrine that is condemning and lawful and has no part of Jesus. But sometimes there is sin at the root of our weakness. And a lot of people, we don't think about this because Jesus says, what he's basically saying is don't go back to that way of thinking. Go sin no more or something worse is going to happen to you. And, and something worse, maybe, I don't know what it was in his life, but I think one sin that a lot of us don't even think is a sin that probably is what this guy was dealing with is self-pity. I think he was dealing with self-pity, or maybe it was anger or blaming others or unforgiveness. It could be anything, but, but my guess is that what he was dealing with was self-pity. And Jesus says, do something about it. Take up your bed and walk. Actually take ownership. Put some effort and make a choice. Uh, there's a story of a golfer. He's a Christian. Um, his name was Mike Drisky. And um, he was telling uh, his testimony, and he was going through a, a really low time. He was on the PGA Tour, and he wasn't hitting the ball like he used to. He, he was uh, slicing. He, he just couldn't get back to where he was. And so on tour one time he was walking down he had just totally shanked his tee off his tee shot on a par five and he's frustrated um he's walking and he's talking to god and because you can't use golf carts when you're on tour and he's talking to god and he says god why aren't you blessing me the way that you used to bless me in my golf game what did i do what what is going on that you're not 
allowing me to hit just like I used to hit. And he said that God spoke to him so clearly. And he said, stop blaming me for your bad golf game. He said, I'm not the one hitting bad shots. I'm actually a good golfer. (laughs) I don't hit all these balls in the water. And so, like, I don't know how that conversation, this is just the story he was telling. But he realized that back before, he, he had gotten comfortable. And he wasn't putting the effort into it that he used to put into it. And so now that was reflecting on his golf game. But I think we do this all the time where we say, God, why are you allowing my marriage to be like this? Or why are you allowing me to get bad grades? Or why are you allowing me to always be tired? And the truth is, God isn't making you stay up late so that you're tired in the morning. He's not stopping you from studying so you can hang out with your friends or go on Facebook. And he's not, ignoring, he's not the one ignoring the needs of your spouse. And if we would put effort into it, those things, those weaknesses in our lives could become strong things in our lives through the power of of Jesus. So this man, he had to get over his excuses. He had to make an effort. And remember, this guy is waiting on an angel. So his experience and what he's looking for is an angel to come down and do this thing. That's his religious experience. And, and I think a lot of times, not only do we need to get past our excuses, and not only do we need to make an effort, but we also have to be able to change the religious experience and expectation that we're looking for. Because what happens here? Jesus comes along and he says, what, take up your bed and walk. Now remember, this is the Sabbath. And according to everybody, because the religious leaders kept shoving it down their throats, was you are not allowed to do anything on the Sabbath. So he had to change something to something that was outside of the experience that he was expecting um, in multiple ways. One way is the angel situation we'll get to in a minute. But the other way is the fact that he's actually picking up his bed. And I love the answer that the man gives. The man who made me well said to. So the guy who can do miracles and not just talk about what I shouldn't do, he told me to. So you could take it up with him. And, and of course, the, the Pharisees, they don't like it. But you have to understand, this wasn't against God's law. It wasn't God's, against God's law to carry your bed. It was against God's law to work. And the Jews had taken it so far that carrying a bed was work. And it's amazing how many things were like that and don't actually make sense. Because if you go to Israel and on the Sabbath, you can't use the elevator. If you are a Jew, you can't use the elevator, so you have to take the stairs because pushing the button on the elevator is work. But walking five flights of stairs is not work. It just doesn't make sense, but this is, again, what religion does. It makes it about the rule and not the ruler. In fact, you look throughout even the name of God, which is Yahweh, they made it in a way that you couldn't say it, and they wouldn't even think the name. Why? Because they were so afraid that they would use the Lord's name in vain. And so they take the name of God. They refuse to say it. And then at one point, they change the name in the transcripts from Yahweh to Adonai. Now, Yahweh was the name of God. Adonai was not the name of God. Adonai means ruler or master, where Yahweh means I am. That was who God was trying to tell them he was. Not a ruler 
and a master. So when you look into the Bible and it has the Lord in all caps, that's actually the word Adonai, which was transferred from the word Yahweh. That's what religion will do in its most twisted form. It will take things that are supposed, even the name of God, and twist it into something that it's not supposed to be. And we're actually going to do a little bit more extensive study on that starting in May on Wednesday nights. Uh, so if you're interested, if that like sort of piqued your interest, and you're like, oh, that's cool, come uh, in May. I think the third week in May, we're going to start a series about things like that. And I would love to have you guys all come. Um, but the point of this whole thing is this man, he had to go against his religious upbringing. I mean, maybe to be healed, we have to step outside of our comfort zones. Maybe to get away and have be strengthened in the way that God wants to strengthen us. Maybe spiritually, you need to be strengthened, and you have to step outside of your religious comfort zone. Uh, for me, at one point in my life, when I was a teenager in youth group, um, nobody raised their hands in, in youth group. And um, for the first couple of years of youth group, when I was in junior high. And I remember one time, like, I felt like God was telling me to raise my hands. And, like, not that you have to raise your hands to be holy or anything like that, but it is biblical. I mean, Psalm 63, 4, it's actually a Bible thing. It says, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Psalm 119, 48 says, and I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Uh, Psalm 134, 2 says, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. First Timothy 2, 8, if you want New Testament. Uh, Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or and dissension. And Lamentations 3:41 says, we will lift up our hands towards the God of heaven. And again, this isn't like a religious thing where if you don't lift your hands, that, that you're, you're not religious enough. But sometimes we need to step outside of our religious expectations or comfort zone. And, and when I was in junior high, this is how I started. I went like this, like just a little, just a little throw my hand up there. And, and what did I think? I thought, everyone's watching me. Oh my goodness. And, and you know, that's just something that a lot of times we, we get nervous about. But, um, then I was actually, we were at a Tim Hawkins concert or comedian concert yesterday, and he had this really funny thing about hand raising. And um, I really want to show you guys, it's like two minutes, but it really went with my sermon. So uh, we're, we're going to show that. It's like, like two and a half minutes. This guy's a Christian. I know that each church has its own worship style, you know, which is cool. Some people are more expressive in worship, some people more subtle, and it's all good. Um, I go to a church that's pretty expressive in worship. It's um, it's a hand-raising church. That's what it is, right? That's what, you know. Anybody here go to a hand-raising church? Sweet. Who here does not go to a hand-raising church? <laughs> Some of you are trying. You're like, I can't. I want to. I need to get some momentum. Totally cool. But hey, if you're not used to going to a hand-raising church, you want to go and join us, feel free to join us. But don't feel like you've got to join right in, okay? Start slow. we got a lot of different hand-raises that we use. We actually have names for our hand-raises. So I'm going to walk you through real quick, okay, what they are, just to let you know. Say you're at my church, music is rocking. Start slow. Hands in the pockets, little elbow flap. You're fine. Very subtle. Get warmed up. Get your heart rate up. When you're warmed up, start with the first one. Ready? Carry the TV. Carry the TV. That's our first one. Very subtle. 
Go to big screen. Big screen, a little wider. Next one's my fish was this big. My fish was this big. If you're a liar, you go out there. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Jesus loves you. Grace. Next one's hold my baby. Hold my baby. Got dueling light bulbs. That's our next one, dueling light bulbs. Got goalpost. Everybody knows goalpost. Throwing a heartburn. A lot of people like to do heartburn. Double heartburn, right back to goalpost. What's my favorite? Mufasa. Mufasa, that's my favorite. The circle of life. Tim, can you go higher? Yes, you can. You take one hand, go a bunch of different stuff. Pointer, hatchet, schoolroom. Release the doves, give the Lord a high five. Press it out. A lot of women like to wash the window. Wash the window. And when you're comfortable there, go for the big three. Village people, Rocky, touchdown. There you go. There's your big three. <laughs> now, I'm a heartburn uh, field, po- field goal post. That, that's me. But, you know, the, the point is sometimes you have to get past your religious experience. Maybe you need a Mufasa on, on a Sunday morning. But um, this man asked Jesus, or this, Jesus asked this man to do something that was outside of what his expectations were supposed to be. Pick up your mat and walk. And he had to get to that point where not only did he get rid of the excuses, not only did he do something about it, but he also got out of what he thought he was supposed to do, to do something that God asked him to do. And remember that, what is he looking for in this situation? He's looking for an angel that would stir the water. And this is around the time that the water would be stirred. And so Jesus comes to him and he does not know who Jesus is. He's looking for a certain experience. And when Jesus says what he says, do you want to be made well? He has no clue that God is speaking to him. And there's a theological truth about Jesus. It's called the incarnation. What incarnation means is God in the flesh. The word carn is Latin for carnal, which means flesh. So a carnal person is a person who um, is talk or who's all about the flesh or things of the flesh or wanting seeking things in the flesh carnivorous actually means flesh so you're actually eating flesh even though we're talking about um about uh meat but this idea is of incarnation is god in the flesh it's god in a human body now i want to give you also a simple definition of the indwelling of the holy spirit the indwelling of the holy spirit is god in the body of a human. In 1 Corinthians 6:19 it says, "Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you?" So God in a human body as the incarnation says, "Do you want to be made well?" And it seems like such a simple answer. You think he would say yes. You wouldn't think that he would just give an excuse. And I don't even believe his excuse. I mean, if he wanted to, he could have been on the edge of the water the whole time. And like, ready? And, and fell down. I mean, he could have done something to get there. But, but that, that's not even the point or, or what's going on. He could have laid on the edge. He could have put in more effort. But God walks up to him in human form. 
and he doesn't know that this is God. He doesn't know who he's talking to. He doesn't know who's asking him this question. And if he did know, I'm sure that he would have said yes. If he knew that was God in front of him, the one who created him, the one who made him, who, who put all of his parts together. And for some reason, he has this weakness in his legs. If he knew that was God who was speaking to him, I'm sure he would have said an emphatic yes I want to be made well. You made me, but there's something wrong with me. So please help me to be better or or to be strengthened. And and in our lives, we see the same thing where, where, where somebody might say to you, Hey, do you want to be made well? Can I pray for you? And what do we say time and time again? We'll be like, Oh, you know, it's okay. I'm good. I, I, I know that God's going to come through at some point. But listen, just as much as Jesus came to this man as the incarnation, as God in the form of a human, and asked this man, do you want to be made well in the same way with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is in anybody who claims the name of Jesus, when they come to you and they say, do you want to be made well? Can I pray for you? Can I help you in this situation? We come to church and we, and we want to pray for people. But what happens is we forget that God's inside of the person who's speaking to you. When we have people up here and they're praying for you, it's God dwelling in a human body. That is praying for you. It's just not a person. And George and Millie, they, they have God in them. And they want to pray for you after service. Linda and Mike, they've got God in them. And they want to pray for you after service. Denise has God in her. Carla has God. These are people who want to pray for you. And just as much as Jesus is God in human body, do you want to be made well? And we think obviously the answer would be yes. When somebody comes up to you and says, can I help you? Can I pray for you? If that person is a believer, you don't know it, but maybe it's God speaking to you, saying, I want to see you made well. And we could have excuses on why we're busy or we don't need to be prayed for right now. We can go through a lack of obedience or not feeling like this is the situation I want to be in because I'm uncomfortable or not wanting to take a step in an effort to come and get prayed for. But God is here this morning saying, do you want to be made well? Don't miss an opportunity for an encounter with God because it's not what you thought it would look like or because it takes more effort than you thought or because you don't want to push away your excuses. God wants to strengthen you. And if it's physical or is it mental or if it's spiritual, whatever it might be, allow God to strengthen you today. Allow God to to heal you, to set you free. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, in your weakness he is strong and he will bring strength to your heart, to your mind, and to your body. Let's pray.